Welcome to this episode of the My Journey as a Physicist podcast. Each episode features an interview with a physicist to learn about their work, their interests outside of physics, and their professional journey of how they ended up where they are today. Season 2 features physicists involved in the particle physics planning community known as SNOMASS. Hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, Julia Gonski. Could you briefly introduce yourself? What is your current job? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and first, thanks for having me on the podcast. This is really fun to be invited. Uh, so I am a postdoc at Columbia University working in high energy experimental physics. So the experiment uh, that I'm involved in is the Large Hadron Collider, which is at the CERN lab facility in Geneva, Switzerland, where we collide protons at really high energies and then build these really complicated detectors to capture all the information that comes out of that proton collision. So the particles that are created and the energies that they have and the directions that they go in. And we stitch all that information together and we try to reconstruct whether there was potentially new physics that was produced somewhere in that collision. So the thing that we're after is the new physics. That's primarily what my particular research is centered on. Um, And I focus particularly on using machine learning methods to search for signatures that are a little bit more unusual than the type of thing that we've looked for in the past in high-energy particle physics, things like long-lived particles, highly boosted objects. I do a bit of anomaly detection, which I think is one of the cooler applications that of, of these exotic machine learning methods to high-energy physics. And I think that covers it for me. Yeah. So, okay, great. So using like the like machine learning, so like, is that more analyzing data or are you doing more like simulation type stuff? Like what kind of, what does your work actually sort of look like in the day to day? So you can do, there are machine learning applications for all, for the things that you just mentioned. So some people are using machine learning to speed up the process of making simulations. Some people are putting this in, starting to put this in at trigger level to make these intelligent decisions, something that our hardware and our software have to do. One of the first things that happens after the collision is decide, was there anything remotely interesting in this collision that would make us want to record it? If we went and recorded every single collision, we would have just like a staggering amount of data in a really short amount of time. So people are incorporating machine learning at the trigger level to make better decisions about recording those events. I do neither of those things. I I focus on the data analysis side, as you also mentioned, where many of the searches that we do for new physics, you can model as a signal to noise problem like extremely generally speaking. There are a couple events that are really interesting that we want to see that maybe contain something cool like dark matter or supersymmetry or some what we call beyond the standard model physics, beyond the set of particles that we know exist. But there's a staggering amount of background. There's you know billions and billions of these events. And so we want to very slowly and carefully slice away all of the uninteresting stuff that just contains standard model physics and isolate those interesting processes. And machine learning can take advantage of correlations among features in the data set to do that in a little bit more of an intelligent way. I also mentioned anomaly detection, which is the application of machine learning when you don't know what your signal looks like. So in the typical classification problem with a neural net, for example, you train over a set of events where you're labeling, I know this one is background, I know this one is signal, please find the difference between them and your model will fit and pick a set of parameters that does that. With anomaly detection, all you do is say, here's a bunch of events find for me the events that don't look like the majority? Is there some rare process that doesn't look like the background, the average type of collision event? And so there's a ton of applications for that, especially as we move towards higher luminosities in the current experimental setup, more collisions in a given slice of the detector at a given point in time, where it becomes more relevant to have a really broad sensitivity to anything unusual that could be 
happening in the detector. Okay. And so then what does collaboration in your group look like? Like, who are you working with and like how many people and what does that sort of look like in your type of work? Yeah, I think the collaboration aspect of high energy physics and in particular the LHC is one of the most unique and to me the, the most exciting features of doing this type of research. The author list on the Atlas experiment, which is one of the multipurpose detectors on the LHC ring, it's the one that I work on, has is well over 3,000 people by now. And so effectively, you have 3,000 colleagues that are all weighing in on every single publication that makes it out of this experiment. Uh, and so the collaborator ring is really broad, which I really enjoy. I find it to be really interesting to talk to people who are experts on different parts of the experiment and watching everyone come together with this shared goal is kind of an incredible, it's an inspiring feature of the research. So my kind of innermost circle of collaborators is the, well, a lot of the students at Columbia and the team at Columbia, we all work really closely together. So there are several graduate students in the group. I'm a postdoc in the group. So we all kind of band together and we'll work on a particular search for a particular type of new physics is what defines the, the search itself. And that becomes a publication. And that is usually composed of maybe 10 people. It can be just one institution. It can be other institutions. And that also makes it interesting. You can kind of go and talk to your friends at CERN and say, hey, I have a cool idea. Let's try to write this paper together. And you can pull in people from you know different countries and different institutions. Uh, so those make up the kind of atomic working groups at the analysis level, then those analyses are organized into physics working groups. So there's a an exotics working group, there's a standard model working group. Each of those have conveners that organize the activity of that group. So there are quite a few layers of leadership and there's a little bit of bureaucracy that comes with that. But I think in the end, it means that we can get a lot of research done with the person power that we have in, in a fairly organized way. And so then also with your position as a postdoc, where can in your career, where do you kind of see going next? Like, do you continue, want to see yourself continuing in this higher higher stuff? Do you want to try to pursue something new and different? I'm pretty invested in the collider physics <laughs> aspect of this. I guess I'm laughing a bit because it is a question now that, that we ask people. I think that the typical, so to speak, trajectory through academia doesn't even exist anymore because there's so many many other things that you can do with a degree in physics. And I think that we are doing a good job as a community making that clear to people that you don't have to come in and get a PhD and be a professor forever. You can go work in tech startups or medical physics or policy. There are really a lot of different avenues. For me personally, I really like this research. I really like the questions that we are after. And I find the idea of tenure to be just like terribly intoxicating. Like if the, if the promise of the job is that you can work forever on whatever you want and you won't get fired. <laughs> that sounds incredible. Like that's really the notion um, that I think I keep pursuing because I, I also think that as you get more mature in your career, you can start to have your own ideas that you'd like to have the bandwidth to pursue, which was something I didn't experience when I was a first year graduate student. I was just trying to learn <laughs> everything that was going on. And now I do, I would like a little, you know, to have some independence to get some of those questions going. So I personally am intending to stay in academia. Yeah. Very nice. And so then what is your involvement with the snow mass sort of collaboration? Yes. So that is very much related to the fact that I want to stay in the field. And in thinking about, okay, what would I, if you gave me tenure, what would I do? Like if you gave me the ability to apply to grants and get my own money and have my own lab and work for decades on this, what does that involve? And that got me thinking about the lifetime of the LHC, which is not forever. It goes out quite far, almost to 2036 now, I want to say, of data taking. So there's a lot of research that we can still do 
with Solar Chadron Collider and will continue to do in the future. But the question of what we build after the LHC is the really interesting one from my perspective. There's lots of interesting things that are that are happening in SnowMass, but I want to make sure that we are setting the groundwork for that next collider now so that I can hope to see some data from that machine in 50 years, <laughs> 40 years when it's done being constructed. Because these are massive projects that take a ton of time and planning and R&D and specifications. It's, it's a very long effort. So I wanted to get involved in SNOMAS because of that interest in future experimental facilities and future physics goals of particle physics. And so in 2020, I stood for election to the APS Division of Particles and Fields Executive Committee. So that's the group that is organizing, coordinating the SNOMAS process. So I was elected to that position in 2021. And then SNOMAS was meant to be in 2021. Of course, various pandemic-related reasons pushed that off to 2022. We couldn't have the, the summer study in person. But now it's happening in July in just a couple of weeks now, which is crazy to think about. But so in the end, all of the most of the leadership that started in 2021 just kind of carried over. So I, I was reelected for the 2022 year. And in that capacity, I do my very best to sort of liaise for the early career community, make sure that early career voices are being heard in the process, that they're able to get connected to the physics topics that they are interested in working on and try to act as a conduit for a lot of different early career efforts that, that have sprung up as a result of this community building, which I think is another cool aspect that comes out of SNOMAS. Not only do we make progress on these physics decisions, but everybody comes together and gets to know each other in possibly the broadest slice of high-energy physics that you could cut. Yeah. And what has like your participation in SOMAS like have really like meant to you? I think it's this idea, what I, the spirit that I really wanted to kind of pull or take, take the temperature of the room when I came into this process is what do early career people want us to do with this field? And it's, it, it turns a bit the academic hierarchy or the expectation of that hierarchy on its head, because we so often come in as early career people, as undergraduates and graduate students, and even still as postdocs, asking the senior people what to do, because we don't, we're not as well trained. I mean, this is a field where you need decades of experience to, to make good decisions and to have good physics intuition and insight. And I'm still terribly impressed all the time by the way that senior people in meetings seem to just be able to like really quickly synthesize a bunch of very complicated concepts and have an idea of where to go forward. At the same time, the fact that these experimental facilities are on the 40-year timescale means that we need buy-in from people who are very young now, because they're the people for whom these future experiments will be the 10-year case. And so I thought that this was a really, what it meant to me was that we could bring all these different voices into the same room. The senior people who have all of the current expertise the younger people who know what they will want to do, make sure everyone is kind of cross-informing and, and communicating with one another. And hopefully that will lead us to kind of the optimal solution of how to move forward. Yeah, yeah, no, that's super, that's super interesting. You had sort of mentioned it earlier, but now I'm kind of curious of like how COVID sort of impacted things. I'm kind of curious on like your career of like, you said you were a postdoc. Um, did you do immediately from like grad school to postdoc? Yes. So I, I got my PhD in 2019 and then I came straight to Columbia to start my postdoc maybe a couple months later. And of course that was, you know, it was the end of, I started in July, 2019. So I had a cool <laughs> eight months of, of being in the postdoc capacity before the first lockdown. But we, we were really fortunate at Columbia. We were able to go back to lab in June, 2020, maybe 
with like masks and distancing regulations and forms we had to fill out and all these different mm-hmm. rules. But oh, it was so nice to be back in lab. And we've been back at lab ever since. We we never had to get shut down again for an outbreak or anything. So that was very important for, you know, productivity and the experience of the postdoc, but just general sanity also. <laughs> so that was a big advantage. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And so kind of going back to like, what got you interested in physics in physics to begin with? Like what led you to become a physicist? I, I have kind of the, the story that I tell about this and the one that I have solidified in my mind, but I keep revisiting it actually. The, the, the more I go, the further I go in the field, I think like, was that really the first part of it? Like, how did I end up in this position? I, I think the first interest I took in particle physics was in high school. I was probably like 15 or 16 years old. I, I must have been around then because it was a sophomore year course that I was taking, which was AP chemistry. And in, in chemistry, we were told that protons, neutrons, and electrons were the fundamental particles, which I believed because why would I not? Like from the chemistry perspective, it's true, right? Yeah. And then I was reading, I don't know, one of these like pop science books, like a uh, brief history of time or something like that. And they say, well, in fact, the proton is made of other things. And I thought to myself, well, that's suspicious. Like, that's not what I was told. <laughs> like, I need to get to the bottom of this. It was, it was that kind of that conviction that, okay, the, the actual truth is at the lowest possible level. What is the most fundamental thing? Like, that became an important question to me at this very young age. And so then I got, I started reading more particle physics and I started taking more physics classes. I declared my major really early in college. I went to Rutgers University in New Jersey, and they have a really nice CMS group, which is also on the LHC. So I got doing into doing LHC research my freshman year of college, and then I was off to the races. Like then it was, <laughs> then I was going to town. But in kind of telling the story, I think to myself, well, but who gave me that? Who gave me the brief history of time? Like, I actually, I actually don't remember. Like, why, why was I reading such a thing? It's funny how you get kind of, I don't know, the tiniest little random fluctuations that mean that you end up in a certain situation. I think it feels a little bit like that now in retrospect. It could have been anything, but here I am still enjoying it. So, yeah. And it, that's interesting that you mentioned like, oh, I learned that this fundamental particles that are actually like not quite what, you know, these other fundamental particles, you know, can't break in like these, not even necessarily misconceptions, but like, I don't know if wise isn't really the right word, but like, oh, actually there's more details to this. Like, are there more experiences like that that you had of like, as you gotten further along in your education of like, oh, actually this thing that I always thought was this way is actually something totally else. Or there's a lot more going on in the background. You know, it's so interesting that you ask that because I've noticed particularly in the past couple of years, it changes progressing in research and developing that, that scientist brain just interferes with your if you with your information processing in every other area of life like now when I read the news or I read books I, I think that kind of thing like oh I was under the impression that this was you know the legislative aim of this particular thing and now I see that it's this other thing and, and what are, what's the correlations what what are the uncertainties on on these measurements that people are putting in in these articles and it um it spoils a little bit your consumption <laughs> other information because so so few I think I've also learned to appreciate that so few other data collection efforts have the luxury of the precision that we have at the LHC where we can so carefully control the environment and it's possible to to make an experiment where you have such small uncertainties I mean I have friends that do biology research and an experimental setup with living things is like a completely different ballpark which would be also interesting to learn about if if I could just go back and do another PhD but (laughs) Yeah, you mentioned like all the work that you do with the LHC, but then 
that you're here at like Columbia, like how often do you actually go out to LHC or is everything just like completely remote that you can do? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. And another one of those unique features of being in LHC research. So the, the reason I'm based at Columbia is that we are working on an upgrade to the Atlas detector for the, the high luminosity LHC, which I think I mentioned earlier, some upgrades to the machine that mean we can collide more protons in, uh, at a, in a particular slice of time in the machine. And so the detectors have to get kind of refurbished to make it possible to, to detect those uh, higher luminosity bunch crossings. So the development of those electronics are happening here in the Columbia Electronics Lab. And we will R&D those electronics and make them work. And then someday they will be produced at some larger scale and eventually get put into the actual cavern in Geneva. So there is hands-on work that we do. And this happens all over the world at all the participating institutions. There's upgradings, upgrades happening everywhere. But then of course it is useful to go to CERN. In, in this field, it's common that you'll spend a couple of years there in graduate school. I think that's, yeah, I think common is a, is a fair word. I lived there for two years when I was doing my PhD. A bunch of our PhD students at Columbia are living there now. Since we were able to travel again, which was even, I don't know, just the end of last year, it wasn't so, obviously I didn't go for maybe a year or something when we were locked down, but now I, I go every other month for a week or two. It's quite a good, uh, it's, it's quite a pace. Yeah. It's a lot of travel. I'm getting really good at red eyes. They're really starting to not bother me anymore, which is how I know that I'm ready for a professorship. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. So I'm, to kind of go more into like your your journey as a physicist here, kind of curious, like if you're comfortable sharing, were there any obstacles that you had to overcome the long, along the way in your kind of career here? Yeah, this is a question. It's kind of like the question about how I got into physics that I've been, I had a, a narrative in my head about this and then I've been revisiting it recently, just kind of thinking with a slightly different perspective on it. I mean, I am obviously, well, I'm a woman in physics, which is an underrepresented. That was palpable to me when I was younger. Like, I definitely have my, my share of the stories that, that people often have that it seemed like in high school, for no reason, guidance counselors would tell me to not take the hard math. Sometimes explicitly, people would say, oh, you want to, like, have a boyfriend or something, which I found, you know, enraging. And, and so I, those things definitely happened. At the same time, I think that I have been so fortunate in other areas of education. And, you know, we were well-versed. We have the vocabulary around intersectionality to now to be able to say, okay, well, this thing was inhibiting, but I was able to overcome it because I was fortunate on these other axes of, of things that can keep people out of physics. So it's just such a, it's such an incredibly complicated sociological concept, this notion of, uh, of what advantages you get and what disadvantages you get. And the, the brain wants to like sum them all up into a disadvantage score, right? And I think it just really doesn't work like that. I mean, just as many random interactions I had with people who inhibited me from doing physics, I had people who really believed in me and stuck their necks out for me and helped me and facilitated my education. So I think in the end, it's important to recognize that mm -hmm. we are in this community context. I mean, that's how I feel now, kind of at the, at the end of all of those, uh, well, I hope at the end of all those inhibiting mm -hmm. factors. I mean, <laughs> things are, things are improving so rapidly, I think. So it's, I guess, not a straightforward answer, mm -hmm. but it is, it's the most honest one, the honest reflection I can give, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. Can I also like step in wait? So talk about doing physics like what do you do in your free time like uh, is it physics all the time or do you have like other hobbies or interests that you try to take a break with yeah I think the break the break aspect is very important you can love your job and still not want to do it 100% of the time I personally love sports most sports many sports um I think it's because I 
you know, the things that make me a physicist in that I'm very goal oriented and interested in working hard to, to achieve gains. I'm, I'm very competitive, honestly, which is something I'm, I'm learning the extent of. And so it's been really helpful for me to have some outlet to get those traits out of, <laughs> out of me outside of work. So I think, I mean, specifically since the pandemic, I've gotten really into mixed martial arts, which, which people think is just like savage brawling. If you've ever seen like a 30 second clip of the UFC or something, but it's really, I find it to be a very intellectual sport. It's like human chess. It's very tactical and it's a very mental game. So I've gotten really heavy into that since coming back from the pandemic. I've also gotten dragged into tennis recently, which I did not learn how to play as a kid. And that's similarly a really mental game, but in a completely opposite way. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, It's not so like physical and, and in, in the moment, but it's like, it's still very disciplined in a different way. So I think it's it's kind of cool to develop these, these have the outlet for the traits that are, competitive and and uh, maybe like an outlet for the stress that accumulates in the course of the job but also to train the brain to think in different ways and then I think that, that does of course make you a little bit more intellectually connected to the work or at least see it in a different perspective so I've found generally athletic activities to be really good for me as an individual for sure yeah very nice yeah I've talked to lots of other grad students and it seems like jiu-jitsu or like other martial arts are becoming like very very popular <laughs> you know it's so there are some so jiu-jitsu is the thing that I do mostly now actually I just had my first tournament in jiu-jitsu a couple months ago and it's and there are so many physicists I was actually just at a um I was at a conference in Brighton in the UK a couple weeks ago and I found some drop-in class just because I didn't want to get too out of shape and I thought it'd be interesting to to fight with some different people and there were two physicists in England in the jiu-jitsu class like I, I think it is really just that whatever makes the brain want to do like quantitative reasoning all day also makes you want to play this sport it's uh it's a funny overlap. Yeah. 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 It's not like whatever stereotype people have in their mind. Like it's definitely the opposite, which I think is kind of cool. Right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. So sort of like wrapping things up, I like to ask, like, do you have any advice that you would give like students or like young fa- like student researchers or faculty or the people in their early careers? Like, sorry, this was a poorly worded question. Like, do you have any advice for, <laughs> for students or like young researchers as they're like traversing through their, their physics career? Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Um, you know, I think there's the thing that I think is the most important to a career in research that is so undersaid that no one will really tell you when you're a young researcher is to network, that it's so important. And I think we like to think that we are, it's a perfect meritocracy and we're all perfectly objective and capable of only measuring people based on their their talent for physics. But this is such a human enterprise to me looking around that the fact that these professional relationships are important should come as a surprise to exactly no one, but I don't think we emphasize that quite enough. So I am a big fan of cold calls or I guess cold emails usually because no one calls anymore, but the idea that you would just contact somebody that you don't know at all out of the blue and say, Hey, I'm, I saw this recent paper of yours. I'm interested in your work. Do you have, you know, do you want to collaborate or do you have openings for graduate students or do you have any advice? You can kind of set up these mentoring relationships because you never really know when you're going to come across people again, even if you're not directly on the job market, it's really good to have your name out there and to have a bit of a brand of of what you're working on. The PI at Columbia that I'm working primarily with now, I actually cold emailed as an undergraduate when I was uh, probably a junior in undergrad because I wanted, I was considering Columbia for graduate school. So I emailed him out of the blue. I thought it was kind of weird at the time. And my advisor 
at Rutgers really encouraged me. She said, no, people are so nice and receptive, like just send the email. And he was so nice and receptive. And he said, you know, come to Columbia. We can chat with you about the program. We'll tell you about the research. And I, I ended up not going to Columbia for graduate school, but here I am. It's it's all such a, such a web, the, the relationships between people. So I think that's the number one thing that I would encourage people to do. I also think scaling up in particle physics, going from being a graduate student and working on some very specific topic to becoming a postdoc and eventually the head of a lab requires a lot of organization and team management and time management and another set of skills that maybe you weren't taught in graduate school, but that are really essential to managing a bunch of projects all at once, which is which was foreign to me when I started my postdoc. I had to kind of learn how to do that from first principles. But I think that's a good thing also to start to practice early and often, keeping track of notes for all the different projects and knowing what the timelines are and where you're going. I think that's a probably good in all careers in general. But again, one of those things that we don't think about it as much in physics because we think we're just doing research. But of course, that's really important to getting anything done. So that's something I, I wish I had kind of started to practice earlier so that I didn't have such a like drop into cold water experience as a postdoc. I think that's really good advice. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for taking the time to do this. It was great talking with you. Of course. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. This podcast was created by Brian Stanley and Professor Wei Wen Lin. Season two was edited by Varley Sakorikar. Thank you for listening. <laughs>